Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So in this uh, section of the evening, even though it was uh, labeled a variety of things are happening, is uh, something you could call Dharma talk, and um, in which uh, the Dharma is talked about. (laughs) (laughs) So what does that mean, the Dharma? So it's something about the truth of the way things are, or nature. And in some ways we are exploring this through our practice uh, all day through all the practices that we've been doing. So through developing awareness and through uh, connecting with the form in the way that we have, through exploring even this uh, feeling tone, Vedana, that was there. This opportunity to explore the truth of the way things are or another way of saying it is to explore nature. And there's a way in which uh, we start to understand ourselves and more and more, I think, as a part of nature, more than we might usually understand that as uh, people who may not live in a rural area. Or maybe some of you do. I live in a city in San Francisco, so it's often easy to perceive oneself as separate from uh, nature or different than nature and carrying our cellular devices and uh, traveling in fast transport and things like that, we consider ourselves uh, different than and oftentimes better than the dogs and sheep and pigeons and cows that we encounter. (coughs) And yet, when you start to slow down and tune in, uh, there's a way in which it could be that at least in regards to the physical body, we're not that different. Have you noticed this at all? There's a way in which when you are slowing down, simplifying your life, and uh, basically doing uh, nothing too complicated or sophisticated, as we are doing on retreat, you kind of get down to the very basics of having uh, this experience of the body. So that includes uh, sometimes being too cold, sometimes being too hot, sometimes being tired, sometimes being awake, uh, being in pain, being a a sense of feeling good and pleasure in the body, getting hungry, needing to use the bathroom, uh, washing oneself. So these are also uh, basically the activities of all of the previous animals I mentioned too, like not that different. <laughs> you, know, and you could go around, to sometimes if you take a walk, you'll see the sheep, for example, and uh, you could uh, reflect in a contemplative way, observe their sheep life, and uh, uh, notice the ways in which, uh, at least on retreat, uh, when you're not using computers and things like that, your life is like, yeah, kind of the same, minus the contemplative element perhaps, but... Uh, In terms of the functions of the body and the experience, it could be not that uh, different. So 
So also when you come on retreat, one of the things that begins to be revealed uh, rather quickly is uh, this element of difficulty of, that's there in this very basics of life. So even in a very simple life in which we actually do have food provided to us here and uh, reasonable warmth and these blankets and cushions and things like that, uh, there's a way in which it's difficult to escape some kind of difficulty, isn't it? Pain, stress, strain. And this is a central aspect of uh, the Buddha's teaching is just recognizing like, yeah, there is this difficulty there in life. You know, we can dodge, we can try to uh, accumulate pleasant experiences, we can seemingly have a very sophisticated uh, technological life, but on a very basic level, it's impossible for us to escape some very basic aspects of our life. So some of you will recognize what I'm talking about as dukkha. So strain, stress, suffering, difficulty, uh, even disappointment, you could say. A disappointment in relationship to our life of experience. So if you've had any of this in your life so far here on retreat at Gaia House, it doesn't mean at all that you're doing something wrong or that you're off the map or that your retreat is bad, that you're a bad meditator. In fact, the recognition of this dukkha, of this strain, stress, difficulty, pain, disappointment and suffering is a central aspect of what we learn when we slow down and pay attention. Now I know they probably don't advertise this in the brochures like this, like come on retreat and uh, experience magnified dukkha. Right? <laughs> uh, it might uh, draw less people to the retreats if uh, <laughs> that part is highlighted. Uh, fortunately, it's not the end of the story because there's dukkha and also promised in this path is the end of dukkha. Uh, so it's not just the dukkha, but yeah, what first is revealed and what first we really need to become intimate with is actually this aspect of our life that is difficult. Now, for many people, this is the aspect of life that kicked them into spiritual path in the first time past, part, right? So like that, there was some uh, acute emergency in your life of health or uh, of someone dying in your life, uh, of losing a job, a relationship ending. Uh, many things like this are the number one reason people go on a search, spiritual search in some way, and uh, end up uh, doing something unusual like sitting and walking silently for days and days uh, on end. And this is really one of the top uh, gateways or doorways to the spiritual path uh, for centuries, for centuries. So if this was the impetus for you to come here, you're in very, very good company. There are stories from the time of the Buddha where there are people who have lost loved ones and who have uh, experienced difficulty and sickness and many different things who come to him asking questions very poignantly you know, about this situation of life, about this difficulty, about uh, dukkha, suffering. So in the story that I mentioned uh, the last time about 
Roitasa, that uh, Deva who was searching for the end of the world. He was searching for the end of the world to find a place where there was no birth, aging, and death. So also, uh, this was in a way his quest through his endless traveling. So just to give a good uh, list of the difficulty, the dukkha that's there, inherent in taking birth as a human being. So Buddha describes this, uh, birth is dukkha. So most of us don't remember our birth, but some people here uh, will remember having given birth or having been in a room where someone has given birth. And it's usually not a quiet enterprise, is it? It's a painful, painful, painful thing. And then the baby usually comes out uh, crying, screaming, popped from its fluid sac, its warmth in the mother uh, into this cold world of fluorescent lights and being spanked. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, birth is dukkha. <laughs> Aging is dukkha. So pretty much anyone, you know, over about 16 years old here <laughs> probably has some uh, acquaintance with this. <laughs> the body starts to get creaky. You can't do all the things that you used to be able to do. Hair moves around in different ways that you didn't like it to. And colors change. Uh, can't eat as many uh, french fries as you used to. Uh, things like that, so... Aging is dukkha, right? And uh, you know, and as it gets into uh, extremes of aging, even more so. You know, like people who are uh, quite old, uh, often, oftentimes experience a lot of difficulty of the body, uh, of the mind, also. Um, so, it's a good reason, and uh, it's a good uh, motivation to practice while you have the ability to uh, engage in the kind of uh, practice we're doing here. Death is dukkha. So this one also kind of obvious. So uh, one's own death is dukkha. One's own death, usually people try to uh, avoid and uh, prolong life and so on. But uh, also certainly the death of loved ones. And most people here have probably experienced someone in your life dying. And sometimes people die earlier than you thought they would. For some people, the death involves a lot of also material hardship. Uh, if it was someone in your family who was looking after you when you were young, or uh, someone who was a provider, uh, or even if none of that, just the emotional connection, the love that we have for uh, people in our lives, friends, parents, siblings, teachers. Yeah, dukkha of death. And particularly that we have no control over that. You know, so that uh, we always think, oh yeah, I know when I'm going to die some, some way in our mind. But we don't. But this says only death is certain, but the time of death and the mode of death is uncertain. So we're a very fraught position here, human beings. Even just those first three, birth, aging, death. And that is also uh, something that we have in common with all the animals. So the sheep, the dogs, the cows you see, the birds, the insects. 
Then the list goes on, the, the Buddha describes. So sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. So these are all uh, forms of mental dukkha. Suffering of the mind. So these are dukkha. Association with the unbeloved is dukkha. So in this life, we are put in proximity to that which we don't want to be in proximity to. That could be with a sense of the uh, people around you and the way they behave. It could be in relationship to uh, politics. It could be in relationship to uh, weather. It could be in relationship to experiences you have at work. Uh, So association with the unbeloved is dukkha. And then separation from the loved is dukkha. So you might experience this on retreat if you miss your loved ones uh, at home, whether that's your partner, your pet, your kids, your neighbors, or even activities that you love, or your favorite pillow, or uh, you know anything. It could be your favorite uh, TV show or something like that. So separation from the loved is dukkha, is suffering. And sometimes it comes up in retreat that you recognize things that you miss that are, you know, they seem kind of trivial in some way. Like, oh, I didn't know I was so attached to my favorite uh, coffee mug. But now that I'm here and it's not with me, like, oh, I wish I had that. Right? Or wishing you brought a different jacket. Like, oh, yeah, I love that jacket. I miss that, yeah. So separation from the loved is dukkha. And not getting what you want is dukkha. And this is a big part of life. You know, we can't, can't control other people, we can't control circumstance, so we don't always get what we want. So today in the uh, soup line, there was various types of soup I saw. Three different kinds, right? So you might have spied that, but then maybe by the time you got to the soup pot, the one you wanted was gone, right? So it was like retreat dukkha, right? <laughs> in a small way but really uh, yeah this is uh, not getting what we want and what are you going to do you don't have the facilities to cook up more lentil tomato soup on the spot right so then the suffering of that and in short the Buddha says the five clinging aggregates so aggregates is another teaching regarding uh, that which we usually perceive to be ourself and that which we cling to and identify with so there's a way in which until we are awakened even the body itself, that which we take to be the body, the mind, <clears throat> the whole mechanism that arises uh, as what we call ourself uh, is actually embedded in some way and connected to and uh, inseparable from this dukkha. Now some of these uh, are suffering, clearly, like death uh, and sickness, really suffering, right? But some of them you could put in the realm of you know, disappointment in some way, or that there's something that's off in this life. There's something out of whack, out of kilter. And this term dukkha is, uh, I believe it referred to um, this metaphor for uh, like an axle in a cart wheel, a wheel of a cart, uh, that wasn't perfectly fitted. So that as it 
rolled, there was a slight like, like it wasn't smooth, you know. So there's something not smooth in this life. You know, we would like it to be smooth, but it's not smooth in so many different ways. A modern uh, one, uh, for those of you who go to cafes, is like, uh, even when things are going fairly well, like say you're sitting at a table in a cafe, uh, but there's one of the legs of the table that's not fully on the ground. You know, it's like crossed like this. So three of them are down, one of them is not. And then uh, you're talking to your friend, you have your tea, your coffee there, and then someone puts their elbow on the table and it's like, ka-chink. And then a little bit spills, right? And then, ka-chink. Again, take it off, ka-chink. Then maybe you try and stick napkins, things under, right? Like that. But it's like, oh, something is off here. You know, there's like imperfection of uh, experience. So even when things are going really well, uh, there's some way in which this sense of the, the stress of life is there. It's embedded in our experience. Or I should say more accurately, it's embedded in the way that we relate to experience. It's embedded in the way that we relate to experience. So the Buddha was uh, interested in exploring this, discovering this, freeing uh, himself and others from this. And um, in his story, it seems like he was seeking the end to old age, sickness, and death. He went on a spiritual quest, and then he became uh, enlightened, awakened. And this happened around the age 35 or so. But then he continued his life. He taught for another uh, 45 years. But, you know, 35 to 80, basically, he got old. Uh, He did actually have uh, pain of the body. I was telling someone in the group today, uh, there are suttas in which the Buddha describes, my body is like an old cart held together with straps. So he had back pain from his ascetic practices. And then eventually he died. So what, what was it that then was the solution? He wanted to find the solution, old age, sickness, death, and then he actually seemed to get old, uh, have pain and illness, and then uh, died. And he died from some uh, like poisoning in some way, like food poisoning. Uh, so the awakening happened uh, in this life. And it's also helpful to recognize the awakening happened. And when the Buddha was awakened, it wasn't like his body suddenly disappeared, poof, and he was like this ethereal spirit that wandered around. So he still went on alms round and got food. He still had to eat. But there was a way in which there was a freedom, a freedom from this suffering. So it doesn't actually have to do with the body having to be different than it is. It could be there's some comfort in this. For me, there's a way in which in our modern life, there's a lot of emphasis on the body changing. You know, and we can get very caught up in like, oh, if my body was only different in these ways, then uh, things would be okay. Right? I would be happy. And it could be something about your looks or your weight or your abilities or uh, any number of things that we could have as critiques of the body. Or on retreat, it could be about the pain in your body in different ways. Like if it only wasn't for this knee pain or this back pain, then my retreat would be good. 
it would be what I had imagined coming here to Gaia House for. Right? It's beautiful meditation. So what if it's possible that the awakening can happen with this and in this very body without having to change a thing of the body? Without having to change one hair, without having to lose one pound, without having to have any less physical pain in the body, without having to smell better, look better, any of that. Like what if you were actually just fine as you are now and full enlightenment was possible right now through this vehicle of this animal body with its itching and hunger and cold and sleepiness and imperfections. There's something comforting to me about that. And it can allow us to let go of our endless quest for uh, perfection, uh, for tinkering with everything in the body. Now the habit is going to be tinkering. So you can notice when the drive is to change things. And ideas come up like, oh, if only for blank, then things would be good. So you can just hold this as a hypothesis. You may not believe this as I'm saying this now. Like what if it was actually just fine as it is now and full liberation was possible? This very body, this very life, nothing having to be different. So what we're up to here is having an opportunity to examine the nature of our experience. And we've emphasized here the form, so the body, the form, and connecting with that. So in some ways, uh, allowing ourselves to become more fully embodied, to connect with awareness to this, this life, this unique, sacred, painful, messy life, and then to learn from that. So we get a chance to explore our experience of embodiment. And through the experience of embodiment, also in connection with the mind, an experience of all aspects of our human life. So among the things that we can start to recognize as we tune into the body is uh, it's actually quite elusive in some way. There could be something that is um, maybe uh, misleading, like we use words to describe things and they're pointing towards uh, experiences or approaches, but they're still um, limited in some way. So for example, we've been talking about this frame, you know, holding this frame of uh, sensory experience of the body. Uh, but there's a way in which frame is too solid also. You know, frame is like the frame of a tent or the frame of a building or frame of eyeglasses. But when you actually tune into this field of experience, it's actually very porous. You know, there's many different experiences coming and going. And there's a lack of solidity to it. Isn't it? 
So if, if you notice this, it's not that you were doing it wrong and you couldn't hold on to this elusive frame. You know, this is actually something that we learn, that the body does not exist as a solid, permanent entity. And through the exploration that we did this afternoon also, we got to play a little bit with noticing the way in which uh, the mind, the mentality, and the physicality kind of interact. So we took a physical position and then noticed how that impacts the mind, our mind states, right? So like the cross-armed one, and then noticing the mind state that's arise, or the slumped over one, and noticing how that impacts mind state too. And then the other side, where we sat and uh, Catherine uh, said various statements that are kind of like uh, beliefs about the body, or about the world, the interaction of the body. And you might have felt as you tried each of those on, like some kind of change in the experience of the physicality, seemingly. So maybe there is no solidity of the body. There's no thing that we're trying to know, per se. But even the way in which we are looking impacts that which we see. So our attention, the mode of attention, has an impact on the arising. So this aspect of dukkha of the body, of the strain, stress, difficulty, disappointment, suffering. The recommendation with this, the teaching about this, is that it should be known. So dukkha should be understood by the practitioner. The invitation is to become intimate with this. And notice the ways in which we don't want to be intimate with this. We don't want to be close to this at all. Like we'd we'd rather stack up pleasant experiences. It's it's such a common uh, tendency to want, you know. And it's a tendency that's there in beginning meditators and in experienced meditators, and in subtle ways and in gross ways. So I mentioned earlier the way in which we think about like what is a good meditation versus what is a bad meditation. When do I think I'm doing well? When is the retreat going swimmingly? Right? And when does it seem like I'm a failure? I should leave here. I have doubt. So usually it's primarily when there's a pleasant experience that we think it's going well and that I'm good at this. And at that time then we start concocting how you come back and join the hermitage wing and you'll be here for months and Maybe you'll become a teacher also. Maybe you'll become a monk. Right? <laughs> and then there can be a rapid descent from even something very small, like a twinge in the knee, right? Into, I'm terrible at this. This is horrible. Why did I sign up for this? I'm never going to do this again. Uh, everyone else seems to be sitting peacefully and quietly. Only I can't do this. Uh, how many more days till the end, etc., right? So recognize this 
you know, these, the way in which the physicality and mentality are, are interplaying, you know, and the ways in which we don't expect part of our process, part of our practice. We don't see the benefit of this intimacy with dukkha. But there is a nobility. There's a nobility to this uh, endeavor, you could say. And Thomas Merton said something like, I don't go to the monastery to escape suffering, but to suffer more effectively. To, <laughs> to learn to suffer more effectively. So that's maybe one framing on dukkha that's helpful. Is, uh, you know, it's not like it's only here in the meditation hall. It's not like it's only here at Gaia House. And so we've cut off many of our usual distractions and escape routes. And so it seems like it's there in bold technicolor uh, glory. So even the very uh, basic form of sitting is in some ways designed to reveal this dukkha. Because in your regular life you usually don't sit and say, I'm not going to move, I'm going to sit steadily here for half an hour, 45 minutes. So in regular life, if you sit there and you start to uh, get antsy, you'll get up and go to the fridge, or uh, you'll change your position, you turn on the television, you call someone. So here, this, this form of sitting is so simple, but it reveals very quickly the way in which, uh, within minutes often, right, there is this difficulty in this life. There's this difficulty, this strain, this stress. Or at the very least, sometimes a disappointment. A disappointment in experiential world, in the way things play out. So we can feel sometimes in this disappointment the ways in which we expected it to be otherwise. And something about this framing of noticing the ways in which we have uh, this um, view, you could say, and... uh, based on this view, uh, things should be otherwise, then uh, we have a perception of things. The perception is then that uh, something is wrong, that there's pain, uh, difficulty. And then the thoughts come up, like, I should leave here, uh, I'm not good at this, and so on. The Buddha talked about this. There's one teaching about vipalasa, it's called, in the way in which our views influence our perceptions, our perceptions influence our thoughts. So there's a, a way in which all of this arises together. And it's not solid, it's not fixed, it's not permanent. So all of this is to be known. To become intimate with this. And it can help sometimes to even have the label that you can use of dukkha. Now dukkha is kind of a nice, all-encompassing word for all of this. So in this way, if you're having a struggle in some way, physically, mentally, uh, I invite you to use this word dukkha as a label, like, oh, this is dukkha. So before it was a problem. It's like, oh, things are not how I want them to be. Now it's like, oh, I'm recognizing something that is actually uh, happening. Recognizing something about relationship to experience, to the body. And in all of this is also some ideas we have about ourselves. 
So the arising of a sense of self, a sense of me. And this can come at all different levels. So it's like me, the meditator, who's doing it well or badly. Me who is part of a community. Me who is separate from the community. Me who is different than others. Uh, Me who is better than others. Me who is worse than others. So also see the suffering that comes from this arising of self, or particularly from investing some belief in these arisings of self. So I mentioned that I had gone to um, Amsterdam before coming here. And one of the things that I did in Amsterdam was go to an unusual museum, uh, which is called the Micropia Museum. So this is a museum of microbes. So as you could imagine, it's actually a pretty small museum. <laughs> See, exhibits are like not that big. So, um, But I, I had actually read about it in a book and uh, was curious to go there. Um, so I with another Dharma friend of mine. And um, yeah, it's very interesting. They have uh, exhibits about um, microbial organisms and organisms. Uh, both in nature and then uh, the microbes that live uh, in and with your body. So I'll share with you a little bit about the, what I learned at this museum, the microbe museum. So this also is like, this is a different, uh, you know, a particular idea about uh, self, a modern, modern view you could say, but... Uh, in some ways, whatever it is that disrupts some uh, static sense of self can be sort of helpful. So one is that the, uh, so the, the Micropia Museum, their, one of their slogans to say, visit this Micropia Museum, is they say, when you look from really close, a new world is revealed to you. It could also be the Gaia House slogan. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, they're pitching it, though, without dukkha. So they say it's more beautiful and spectacular than you could ever have imagined. <laughs> it also can be more like horrible and uh, difficult. But you know. So among the things that you can learn in this is that um, there's this whole system um, of microbes that exist uh, in, in connection with that which we call our own body. And I'll read you a little bit of what I learned from this. So for years, bacteria have had a bad name. They are the cause of infections, of diseases, something to be scrubbed away to be avoided. But now researchers have taken a detailed look at another set of bacteria that play an even bigger role in health and disease the hundred trillion good bacteria that live in or on the human body. No one really knew much about them, but they are essential for human life, needed to digest food, to synthesize certain vitamins, to form a barricade against disease-causing bacteria. So they are there in all healthy people, and uh, they can vary from person to person, but there are more strains than have ever been imagined as many as a thousand bacterial strains in each person. But each person's collection of microbes, the microbiome, uh, is slightly different from the next person's. So there's uh, genetic signatures also that are there. And 
some of the articles I've read suggest that even when you uh, leave a room, there's some sort of trace of that uh, microbe, uh, microbiome that's like uh, left there. So also there's, uh, within this microbiome, many of the bacteria that are often thought to be uh, disease-causing bacteria, but they're actually just uh, living peacefully among their neighbors. So humans, says this Stanford microbiologist, are actually more like coral, an assemblage of life forms living together. Humans, in some sense, are made mostly from microbiomes. Uh, from the standpoint of the microbiome, what we call ourselves may just serve as the packaging. <laughs> so this removes our uh, static point of view of, uh, of me in that. A microbiome starts to grow at birth. As babies pass through the birth canal, they pick up bacteria from the mother's vaginal microbiome. The babies are microbe magnets, and over the next two to three years, the baby's microbiomes mature and grow while their immune systems develop in concert learning not to attack the bacteria and recognizing them as friendly. So another article says, every person alive is host to about 100 trillion bacterial cells. They outnumber human cells 10 to 1 and account for 99.9% of the unique genes in the body. So the title of this is, Are We More Microbe Than Human? So uh, another way you can play with this is if you ever start feeling very alone, uh, you could remember. <laughs> is that actually true? You're never actually really alone, right? There's 100 trillion microbacteria with you. Right? So, you know, this is one sort of scientific view, right? A modern scientific view. And, but it, it disrupts in some ways a previous view that might be held, right? Like, this is me, this is how I am, um, this kind of thing. And I, th I think that I have um, I really referred to this article the last time that I was here also. That there's another way in which even the basic organs that we consider ourselves uh, are also constantly changing, right? Are made of uh, different cells that are constantly being born and dying. So I'll give you another uh, scientific perspective. So although people may think of their body as a fairly permanent structure, most of it is in a state of constant flux as old cells are discarded and new ones generated in their place. Each kind of tissue has its own turnover time, depending in part on the workload endured. The cells lining the stomach last only five days. The red blood cells bruised and battered after traveling nearly a thousand miles to the maze of the circulatory system last only 120 days or so, before being dispatched to their graveyard in the spleen. The epidermis, or the surface layer of the skin, is recycled every two weeks or so. A reason for the quick replacement is that this is the body's saran wrap, which can be easily damaged by scratching solvents, wear and tear. Cling film, yes, thank you. <laughs> Uh, as for the liver, the detoxifier of all the natural plant poisons and drugs that pass a person's lips, its life on the chemical warfare front is quite short. An adult human liver probably has a turnover time of just 300 to 500 days. 
Other tissues have lifetimes measured in years, not days, but are still far from permanent. Even the bones endure a nonstop makeover. The entire human skeleton is thought to be replaced every 10 years or so in adults as twin construction crews of bone-dissolving and bone-rebuilding cells combine to remodel it. So this points to the constantly changing nature of the body so from the scientific perspective. And we get to tune into this somewhat through the practice of awareness, the, the energetic layer of the, the body that we're tuning into. Uh, so for those for whom science is sort of a belief system or a religion, uh, bring this information to help you sort of see, like, yeah, they're, they're actually in connection. You know, what you perceive through awareness of impermanence, uh, what the Buddha was saying also about uh, perception of impermanence in the body, uh, and what actually science has discovered, or what we've discovered uh, so far. And this points to some deep instability, right? An instability of the physical form, uh, difficulty in finding a place to, to, of refuge within this. So it's understandable that then there is a sense of uh, stress. When we look for permanence, when we identify with something that is constantly, it's like sand running through our hands, you know, unable to grasp it, unable to hold it. It's a recipe for suffering. So the good news is that through the practice, we can start to recognize this in our perception of our experiential life of the body. And as we tune into this more and more, uh, we can in some ways align ourselves with this truth of the way things are. So we can develop a greater harmony with the Dhamma, with nature, which is the way in which we are ourselves part of nature, part of the land, part of the trees, part of the water, uh, part of the earth. In some ways, the more we can relax into that perspective, recognizing ourselves as part of nature, then the less we have to suffer. So this body doesn't have to change itself any more than the sheep need to look different or the trees need to look different or the rain needs to run down differently. It's helpful also to spend time in nature in this way, both to uh, connect with nature, to recognize ourselves as part of nature, and in some ways also to hold ourselves with kindness. As as we can tune into this real poignancy and uh, the way in which we are vulnerable, just as all the animals are, uh, from the moment of our birth, it can help us to shift to an attitude of goodwill or kindness uh, towards our own body and then towards the bodies of all of those around us, all living beings. In some ways, what else is there to do? What else is there? What other attitude makes sense? Even the conditions of our lives. So dukkha, it sounds like bad news, but the recognition of that, being able to see that clearly, the aligning with that, and then letting go of holding on to and identifying with 
that which is not actually ourselves is the way to freedom. So it's good we have more time in this endeavor and uh, if you've come up with experiences of dukkha, you're not on the wrong track, you're on the right track. So have courage. Have courage in your uh, intimacy with this experience too. So if you've let go of the sense of the body sitting and listening to the words, you can reconnect again. You don't even need to reconfigure yourself, although you can if you want to. Recognize again the energy of this living body, this breathing body. This microbiome is constantly changing a live organism. We can see if we can hold this imperfection of the body with a sense of kindness. If we can allow it to be as it is. We can recognize that just as we are subject to all of these forces of strain, of stress, of difficulty, so are all of our fellow friends here. We can see if we can hold all of us with a sense of goodwill, kindness, and particularly in appreciating our courage in being here to explore this, learn how to suffer more effectively. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.